Good evening. It's a great honor for me to be with you all tonight. Um, I've been with you before and you asked me to come back, so that's an honor. Sometimes when I preach, I don't get asked to come back. Um, that's okay. But I'm very grateful to be here. Uh, we, uh, on behalf of myself, my family, our trustees, and those we partner with at Foolproof Gospel Ministries, we're very grateful for the church's faithful support. You all have held the ropes for us for several years, and I believe that that, by default, makes you part of the work uh, that we attempt uh, to complete according to the calling of God. So thank you. Without the prayer cover of the saints, without those holding the ropes, surely um, I could have stumbled and fallen, or surely I could have failed in uh, being obedient. So I'm thankful about how the Lord uses that tonight. Now, I'm going to start my little uh, voice recorder here. I wanted to record this and perhaps use it uh, on our website, if that's okay, as a challenge. I'm not going to preach what I had planned to preach tonight. What I heard this morning uh, uh, sparked me to something else. I heard some things that were preached by the missionary this morning that were encouraging to me. I heard uh, boldness spoken of in terms of closed countries, uh, something you don't hear much anymore. And more important than that, I heard missions talked about in terms of the glory of God, something I believe we've forgotten. This morning it was said that missions is not about the needs of man. Missions is about giving God the glory through His name. And if we forget that, we'll go down a path that leads to all kinds of apostasy. We'll fall down a path that leads to false teaching and ultimately to destruction. You see, all of human history, the Bible, God's truth, it's not about man. The redemption of man is part of it. I believe that everything is about the glory of God. And whether men accept or reject Jesus Christ, on the day of judgment, God will be glorified. Whether droves come to Christ through our carrying out of the Great Commission, or whether none ever listen, like in the days of Noah, God will be glorified. And we need to remember that the purpose of missions is the glory of God. And if we'll put that before our face, and we'll remember that it's better to please God than to put confidence in men, then we'll find that God can use us in a mighty way. And we'll find victory in many things that the world would say is defeat. One of the greatest missionary chapters in the Bible, I believe, is the commissioning of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet saw God's glory. And God's glory compelled him to pronounce a curse upon himself, to repent before God as a man of unclean lips, and then to surrender. Here am I, Lord. Send me. That's a great chapter. And John tells us in chapter 12 that who Isaiah saw on the throne was none other than Jesus Christ. But that glory of God compelled Isaiah to repent and to surrender to God's commission. And that same thing ought to compel us to repent of those things that so, doth so easily beset us and distract us from God's call and to surrender to the work of the Great Commission, something that we all are called to. The Great Commission is not just for a few. It's not just for the disciples. It's for all Christians. 
And it wasn't a great good suggestion. It was a great commission. You all are familiar with that passage in Isaiah 6. I'm not going to read that tonight, but I want to take a step back. Oftentimes we start with chapter 6 and we're not real familiar with what takes place before that. And I think sometimes the context, the fuller or the larger context of some of these familiar scriptures shed an amazing light on what God is trying to teach us there. Last, a couple of weeks ago, I was on the campus of the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and I preached a heartfelt message. There's a crowd of about 20 that stood by, and I spoke of how it's a dangerous place to be in our society when God actually invites us to keep sinning. And I spoke from the book of Amos, where God just finally told Israel, just do it. Come to Gilgal, transgress at Bethel for this liketh you. And then he goes on to say, because I have warned you and warned you and warned you and you've not heeded me, prepare to meet your God. And I spoke of how in America we've been warned by God, we've been warned by God, we've been warned by God. Are we in a place where God's just inviting us to continue doing what we're doing in preparation to meet him face to face? It's a very precarious and dangerous position to be in as a society. I was amazed to preach from the heart. To preach escape from God's judgment through Jesus Christ and to watch a crowd stand there when the day before at Winthrop University in South Carolina, the whole campus was thrown to an uproar. And as I thanked them for listening and I stepped down wondering if I'd wasted my time, I heard a round of applause. <laughs> Don't get that very much. And the Lord set up a really interesting conversation with some agnostics that had some good questions and I got to preach Jesus Christ. But in the same way, it's a precarious position for us as a society to be where God could perhaps invite us to sin as he did the people of Israel, the people of Judah. It's also a dangerous place to be as the church. To forget that we sh that to, to forget about the glory of God and that missions and the work of the church is about the glory of God. It's a dangerous place to be. I want to look tonight at Isaiah chapter five. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to be kind of working through the chapter, setting up Isaiah chapter 6. And prior to chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, there's a lot of warning. There's a lot of pronouncement of judgment against a people that knew God, His chosen people, but forgot Him. Against a people that should have known better. Not only for Israel, the northern kingdom that had apostatized long before, but for Judah, the line of David, the tribe of David that had forgotten. And in chapter five, after talking about coming judgment, also referring to future blessing, that blessing would not come without chastisement. The prophet tells a short parable, the parable of Jehovah God's vineyard. I'm just going to read the first few verses here. It says, now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine. And built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, 
When I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof. It shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. The vineyard here represents God's chosen people, Israel, and all that God did for them. What more could be done for my vineyard than that has been done? What more could be done? A rhetorical question. There's nothing more God could do. He did everything that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Now, I'm not going to sit here tonight and confuse the context of these scriptures or try to allegorize the Old Testament and make an argument that the church has replaced Israel or any of these things. This was written to God's people. He's got a plan for his people that he will fulfill. His promises will be made true. They will come to pass. The church, that mystery is a great special program in God's plan for the ages, Jew and Gentile coming together. But I think what God is saying to Israel in this passage can be a message of warning to us as the church. Like Israel of old was God's chosen nation risen up to display and demonstrate his character to all the world. So is the church an instrument of God in this age to preach the gospel. To proclaim the one true God. And to demonstrate God's kingdom spiritually on earth that one day will be physical. Yes, the Lord lives and reigns today in the hearts of his people. Days coming when he will set foot on the earth and live and reign physically in righteousness. And the reigning of God in our hearts today points to that day. It's a, it's a message of God to the nations. So in a way, we are like God's vineyard. As the church, he's given us his revelation he saved us from hell through drawing us to His Son. He's sanctifying us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's given us great responsibility. He's blessed the church through the centuries. He's fulfilled His promise. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. To this day, the gates of hell have not prevailed against the true church, the remnant body of Jesus Christ. What more could be done for us? Have we reached a position, though, that Israel of old did? Have we reached a position where we're no longer in this Laodicean church period bringing forth grapes or fruits and bringing forth wild grapes instead? Have we come to that point? I travel around America. I'm, I weep to think of the apostasy that's overrun the church in America. You know, it says in Psalm chapter 12, the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. I'm not a politician. I believe it's more important for us as Christians to proclaim the truth of the gospel than it is for us to go to the polls on November 2nd. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go to the polls, but it's more important for us to preach the gospel. There's a certain takeover of Congress on November 2nd that many of us would like to see. That doesn't mean America's going to be fixed. There are vile men in leadership in this country because the wicked walk on every side. The fault is ours. And it ultimately comes down to the church because we're a light. We're the witness. And this nation has been a light to the Gentiles for years. 
God used this nation and the Western civilizations in Europe to take the gospel to the ends of the world. Reading of what God did in the 18th and 19th centuries in the early days of the, the colonies. Amazing stories that we don't see repeated today. That doesn't mean God's faithfulness has changed. It doesn't mean the power of His Word has changed. But I wonder if here in the 21st century, the church here in America particularly, has ceased to bring forth grapes and we're bringing forth wild grapes instead. He goes on in this chapter, uh, after telling this parable of the vineyard, he goes on to pronounce six woes upon the nation of Israel. Six woes. And in reading these, this immediately precedes Isaiah's vision of God's glory. In reading these, I came across this just in a personal study time with the Lord weeks and weeks ago. I had to ask myself, am I, as a missionary, guilty of these things? Am I, as a Christian, guilty of these things? Am I, as part of the church, guilty of these things and therefore I cannot envision the glory of God as the prophet does in chapter 6? I think it's worth asking ourselves these questions. So I'm going to kind of go through chapter 5 here and, and just kind of briefly touch upon these woes uh, that bring us up to that great vision of God's glory. And the point of my message tonight is to reiterate what our brother iterated this morning, that missions is about the glory of God. And everything we do needs to be about glory, the glory of God and obedience to Him and away with these man-made philosophies, away with this false teaching, away with, if it feels good, do it. And let's be about the glory of God. That's the point tonight. But let's ask ourselves some questions. In, in chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. Are we, as the church, the core of missions. The core of the Great Commission is the church. That's how God set it up. We're at the heart of it. The remnant body of Jesus Christ, we're at the heart of it. Are we guilty instead of envisioning the glory of God and being obedient to Him? Are we guilty of laying house to house and field to field? Are we guilty of being concerned with heaping up earthly treasures, buildings, programs, complex strategies as opposed to being motivated by the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel ministry and the glory of God. It's a question worth asking as I travel around America and then in turn interact with believers in other countries. I'm astonished at how much in our culture has become about laying field to field and house to house. Big buildings, treasures, outwardly grand, outwardly beautiful, outwardly glorious. But as Jesus told the church at Laodicea, inwardly wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Woe unto Israel for these things. Woe unto the church. Woe just as I preach preached at the campus two weeks ago. Woe just means you're in trouble. <laughs> you're in big trouble with God. We need to repent and get right. The wonderful thing about God and the demonstration of His love and grace is that God never dispenses judgment without warning. 
can't find an instance in history where God dispensed judgment without warning. It's not there. God wiped Nineveh off the face of the planet. The ruins weren't discovered to the mid-1800s. People used to doubt the veracity of the Bible because where is this Nineveh? It wasn't uh, discovered across the river from the modern-day Iraqi city of Mosul until the 1800s. It's there. But God erased it. But He warned them. And for a time they repented, but they forgot quickly. God warned people in the days of Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. If you want a demonstration of faithful missions, look at the life of Noah. A preacher of righteousness, according to Peter. Preached for 120 years without a single convert. But he's modeled as a man of faith in Hebrews 11. He's shown to be a preacher of righteousness. He didn't judge his success or failure by numbers or programs or buildings, but by being obedient. Are we laying up for ourselves earthly treasures in terms of our ministry? Are we using the world to achieve our ends in ministry as opposed to simply obeying God? Content to be a nobody for the cause of Christ. It's a question worth asking. It goes on to say in verse 11. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink that continue until night till wine inflame them. God pronounced a woe upon the people of Israel. They were consumed with alcohol, drunkenness and strong drink. I fear today that in the churches of America, we're drunken on the man-made philosophies, pragmatisms, and strategies of men. How often are our missionary uh, organizations, our mission programs, our churches built upon a model of business? I see all around this country pastors that are more like CEOs than they are shepherds. Mission organizations that are more about being popular and being able to stay in a nation as opposed to preaching the gospel and willing to risk the consequences of that. We're drunk upon strategies, complexities, man-made philosophies. The very thing that the Scriptures warn us about. Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, you're familiar with this passage, I'm sure. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy in vain deceit. After the traditions of men and the rudiments of this world and not after Christ. How much of what we do is rooted in the philosophy of men? Well, you can't preach open air on a college campus. Nobody's going to listen to you. You're turning people away. It's not effective. You can't go into a closed country and give out a gospel tract on the street. You're just going to get kicked out. You're going to ruin all the work that all of these other missionaries have done. You can't do these things. It's not effective. What about God's Word? God's Word is clear. When His Word goes out, it does not return void. I, it's like a broken record on the college campuses. I believe that the college campus in America is one of the most spiritually dark places in all of the world. And I speak as one who has proclaimed Christ in dank, dark Buddhist monasteries, the most depressing place you'll ever be on the planet. I've been to the temples in India where they sacrifice the goats and hack their heads off and there's blood on the ground to the goddess Kali. I've been to these places. They're dark. They're wicked. But none approaches the college campus in America today. I... Weep for those Christians that have to endure in this. It's so different than even when I 
was in university uh, over ten, uh, more than 10 years ago. But it's dark. It's dark. And what grieves me is to go on these campuses, to share the word of God, to preach open air in a manner modeled after the scriptures. Paul preached in the open air. Jesus preached in the open air. Uh, it's a scriptural strategy. It's an old strategy that Christians have done for years. And to be told, I agree with what you're saying, but what you're doing is wrong. You shouldn't be out here preaching. We're all sinners. It's no big deal. That's why Jesus died. We can just sin. It's okay with God. I've heard Christians tell me that. Get out of here. You're ruining the relationships we've tried to build. You're, you're, you're breaking down everything we've tried to do. And I had a man, I'm sad to admit this, I went on a tour uh, about a little over a month ago, campuses in Pennsylvania. And um, there's great freedom to preach on the public campuses in Pennsylvania because uh, some Christians were arrested and had great legal counsel. And um, uh, the, state's, uh, the state constitution was pretty clear. The case went all the way to the state Supreme Court. And uh, it opened the doors uh, for the gospel to be preached. And we were on a campus in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. And I was in partnership with a young man who is a missionary with the North American Mission Board. So he's with the home or the domestic arm of the Southern Baptist Joint Efforts and Missions. We heard from a young man this morning from the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, labors in a variety of venues here in America. There's many faithful missionaries I'm so thankful for. And that our uh, um, uh, Annie Armstrong Easter offering is what's used to support the home mission board. But um, we were laboring in partnership with him. He travels all around America preaching on the campuses. And we hadn't been on that campus five minutes when a man came out and he began to parade in front of the preachers, waving his hands at the crowd. Do not listen to these people. I am a campus pastor here with New Life Ministry. We have ministries here on campus. These people don't care about you. They hate you. Do not listen to them. We hate these people. Do not listen to these preachers parading back and forth. There were men and women that came out boasting in their sin, boasting in their homosexuality. I can't even repeat what took place. This man campus pastor chuckled and laughed, thought it was funny when a lesbian came up before the preacher and did the, this vile actions right in front of the whole crowd. And so come to find out later on in doing some research, this man who stood in the way of the gospel was a fellow North American mission board missionary. I couldn't believe it in charge of a Southern Baptist campus ministry. Why? What has happened? I love my heritage as a Southern Baptist too much to be quiet. I made a phone call to the North American Mission Board the next week. I'm hoping they're going to do right and purge our organizations of this garbage. It's everywhere. Those that are drunk on the philosophies of men and would take the clear cut strategy of God and say it doesn't work. Get out of here. We hate you. We want nothing to do with you. God's strategy for missions is simple. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 11, um, he talks about beware, like in the same vein that Eve was deceived through the subtlety, the subtlety of the serpent, beware lest you also be corrupted or your minds be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to warn the Corinthians, I fear that somebody's going to come along preaching another Jesus. And you're going to listen to them. A different Jesus. Oh, there's different Jesuses worshipped all over this country today. 
Many times people, I love Jesus, but the Jesus they're serving is an idol that they've put together in their own minds to suit their own lust and pleasures. We need to be following the Christ of the Bible. We need to be bringing the glory of the God of the Bible to the nations. Not the God of the world. Jehovah God, Allah, the Quran, they're not the same. Who can say that? I hear it all the time, though. I hear it all the time. We're drunk on man-made philosophy. We're drunk on ecumenism. We're drunk on that false concept of God that's ultimately going to head up the one world church and be manifested in the man of sin, the Antichrist, as Paul spoke of. We're drunk on these things. And woe unto those drunk on these things. We need to purge ourselves of man-made philosophy and follow the simple truth of the Bible. Be not corrupted from the simplicity. That's what I appreciated about the message this morning. That young man communicated a ministry that was simple. Bringing the glory of God to the nations. Even those nations where you run the risk of arrest or perhaps death to preach the gospel. I told him after the service, I have a great love for going into closed countries. One of the things our ministry does is we want to work with those that are in long-term situations in closed countries. We understand that in, in order to maintain a presence there, they have to be very careful. But at the same time, there's needs to get the Word of God out. Oftentimes, Christians will supply money to print scriptures and scripture portions and tracts, and they need to get out on the street. But the longer-term missionaries, they've got to be very careful. That's where I want to go in, be super bold with the team of brethren that, are, that have suffered for Christ and willing to do it. Get those scriptures out on the streets, get the word out there, and then those that remain behind are there to reap the fruits. Our contact or our relationships remain anonymous, and if I get kicked out of the country, it's no big deal. Been there, done that. I told him, if you need some scripture that needs to be distributed, you call me. I will come in there and we'll do it. Because I believe in missions that is bold, not only in open societies, but in closed societies. And when I hear a young man talk about missions in terms of the glory of God, that excites me. Because there's far too much that talks about missions in terms of the needs of man. And because it's about the needs of man, the needs of man, the needs of man, the gospel falls by the wayside. And before you know it, missions is not the gospel anymore at all. It's a social gospel. Well, we'll go on here and meet these needs, but God forbid we mention the cross or we mention sin because we might offend someone and then they won't come back to our hospital or whatever. Oh, we should use platforms to preach the gospel, but those platforms are a means to an end. And I'm afraid that because we're so drunk on man-made philosophy, they've become the end in and of themselves. I labor and work in Nepal and many years ago, Christians set up a hospital there through an NGO called the United Mission to Nepal. And the idea was you couldn't get into the country on a visa unless you had an NGO platform, like a government program to minister some kind of social needs. So they built a hospital there in Kathmandu. And the hospital was a means to preach the gospel. And it was done. If you go to that hospital today, the NGO's still there, the mission's still there, the hospital's still there. On the wall are paintings and pictures of Hindu gods, of Hindu philosophy illustrated. No longer is the gospel preached. The people are still ministered to through the hospital. Their physical needs are met. But the gospel is no longer preached. What good is it? It's just like the vineyard. God planted it to bring forth grapes. It bought forth wild grapes. What more can be done but to dig it down? 
I've seen far too much of this to be quiet anymore. We must get back to the simplicity of the gospel. We must sober up from the man-made philosophy that has made us drunk with things that are not of God. God ordained preaching as a means to carry the gospel to the ends of the world. It says it there in 1 Corinthians one twenty one. After that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. I'm going to preach in the open air because God says He uses it. Not because some statistics say it doesn't work. Or does or doesn't work. God says when His Word goes out, it doesn't return void. Therefore, when the Word goes out, regardless of the response of the crowd, it's a great victory. It's simple. Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. And make sure that your lives, our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, demonstrate the words that we're preaching. But the world says this. Or, or the worldly church let me change my, change my phrase here, says this. Everywhere you go, preach the gospel. And if absolutely necessary, only if absolutely necessary, use words. That goes back to St. Francis of Assisi, a Catholic monk who preached and held the theology that we as uh, Bible believers could never agree to. That's not biblical. I haven't found it in the scriptures. I hear it quoted all the time. I hear Christians on the campuses tell me I shouldn't be preaching. You should be preaching the gospel through the way you live. And only if necessary, use words. But Paul said, I believe, therefore I speak. Preaching implies speaking. And therein lies the risk when it comes to missions. The risk is when we open our mouth to proclaim the atoning work of Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. To warn the sinner of God's judgment. And to declare the only means of escape. That's where the risk is. And we need to be willing to. To do that, to sober up from all this man-made philosophy that would tell us there's a better way and do it the way God said. I need to move on. I start rambling and get hung up on that one. Uh, let's move to verse 18 in chapter five. It says, woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, a cart rope. Are we guilty of this? Are we guilty of turning the grace of our God, as Jude tells us, into lasciviousness? Using the grace of God to fulfill and feed our lust. Using the grace of God as an excuse to sin. I pray not. Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! God is calling us to be holy. And as missionaries, as Christians, as the church, we need to be holy in our lives. And holiness isn't preached anymore. There's so many young people on the campuses that have grown up in youth groups and campus ministries. And they'll sit there and they'll say, Jesus died for my sins. It doesn't matter if I sin. It's okay. It's no big deal. None of us are perfect. No, none of us are perfect. But it's like we use that as an excuse to sin instead of realizing that Christ came to save us, not only from hell, but from our sins. And He wants us to be holy. But are we content to drag around our sin with a cart rope or cords of vanity? More than anything else, if missions is about the glory of God, and we want to bring God glory, then we need to be holy in all manner of living. Thank God, as a Christian, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
But as a Christian, for me to sin is not a pleasurable exercise. I use this illustration on the campus. You know, the only difference between a sinner and a saint. For Christians, we're saints. Is a saint is a sinner saved by grace. And the difference in lifestyle between a saint and a sinner can be illustrated like a river. A river, a raging river is like is sin. And it's heading for a precipice, a great waterfall. The sinner's swimming in that river. It's a hot day. It feels great. He's swimming. He's bathing. He's basking. He's not going to get out. No clue concerning the destruction that awaits. The Christian, however, has been rescued from that river. God's thrown him a life preserver, Jesus Christ. And he's taken him from that river and he's set him on a path. And that pathway runs alongside the river. Oh, it's got a steep cliff. It's somewhat dangerous, but there's a clear path. And when it gets to the precipice, it makes its way down to the rocks. The difference between the sinner and the saint, the non-believer and the Christian, the non-believers in that river. He's living a lifestyle of sin. He's loving it. The Christian's on the path. God's taking him out of that river. Occasionally he may trip and stumble into that water, but the water shocks his system. It's cold and he clamors for the shore and gets back on the path. That's the attitude of a Christian towards sin, not it's no big deal to sin. Who are we? Who are we if we're claiming Christ and unwilling to depart from iniquity? Let him that nameth the name of Christ, Paul says, depart from iniquity. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Peter refers to that from the Old Testament. It says there that Jesus Christ and Peter bore our sins in his own body upon the tree, that we being dead to sin might live unto righteousness. If we're going to bring God glory, we need to live unto righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not of works. Don't misunderstand me. It is by grace through faith. It is as simple as a prayer. Of repentance and faith. But the proof of the genuineness of our salvation is perseverance in faith and holiness. I can tell you all day long I got saved as a 17-year-old young man when I knelt down and prayed to receive Christ. But the proof of that is that I'm living a life of repentance and faith today. Salvation is by grace through faith, but it is preceded and followed by repentance. Repentance is to change our mind about sin. Repentance is to agree with God's verdict on our sin. And repentance is to turn from sin and turn to God. I'm afraid in the church we're drawing our sin like a cart rope. We're content to just use the grace of God. You know, I um, believe that genuine salvation cannot be lost. I believe that God who saves men, keeps men, causes them to persevere. And that a genuine believer will persevere. He will endure to the end. He cannot fall away. When Paul talks about falling away there in Hebrews uh, chapter 6, he talks of salvation being something different in verse 9. But I am persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation. However, oftentimes in our Baptist churches, we speak of once saved, always saved, almost as an excuse to keep sinning. I don't believe that. I don't believe once saved, always saved is an excuse to keep sinning. What I believe is that genuine salvation produces fruit. And that fruit brings God glory. And he who begun a good work will complete it. It's amazing how biblical sound doctrine has been twisted by the evil one. And it's gotten into the eyes of men and they're worshiping an idol and not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. 
drawing sin as a cart rope. Woe unto those that do that. If we're going to bring God glory through the work of missions, through the work of the church, then we need to let go of that wagon, that cart rope. Let it go and let it, let it roll down the hill and into the gutter and be done with it. He goes on in uh, verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness. I don't believe I need to elaborate on this too much. If anything personifies calling good evil and evil good, it's American society. How much that, that, that God calls evil do we call good? I don't know if you're aware, uh, there's an exit on interstate. I think it's already turned to 85 by this point. Exit 150. I usually always stop there to get gas when I'm heading back because it's cheap. It's the Hall River exit. You folks know where that is? There is a... An edifice near there, I believe it can be seen from the highway. There's a couple of smokestacks, and there's smoke oftentimes pouring uh, into the sky. Do you know what that is? Most Christians aren't aware of that. Do you know that that's a modern-day Auschwitz right here in America? you know what they're burning there? Aborted fetuses. That's where aborted babies are sent. One of the places they're sent. Right here in North Carolina, the smoke of human flesh rises into the sky. And we in America say that's good. That that's freedom. That's the epitome of what's wrong with our country. Why are we at this point? Because the church has been silent. We've forgotten that our own society is a mission field and we should be preaching against this sin and wickedness. Preaching a way to escape the judgment of God through Jesus Christ. And warning the wicked of God's judgment. But we, in in I mean, we may as well be calling good evil because we keep silent. I'll tell you what riles people up when I go to college campuses. And some people might be uncomfortable with this, and I'm okay with that. But one of the things we do, particularly around election time, is we take some uh, images uh, out there that are very graphic, that show the world what an abortion really is. Oh, they hate that. They hate that. This is a constitutional right here in America. I'm not here to preach politics tonight, but we have called evil good and good evil in America. And you'd be amazed at the young people that'll stop and see that and be shocked. They have no idea that that's what um, that is. And it's amazing. We've had some fruitful conversations and I believe have shown people reality that they would possibly not even think about doing that. But as a society, we've called evil good, we've called good evil. Woe unto that society. Have we done that in the church by being silent? Maybe so. Maybe so. The, Bi the Bible calls this in Revelation chapter 2 to the church at Pergamos. The Bible calls this attitude the doctrine of Balaam. Who cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. The doctrine of Balaam is using the world and the wickedness of the world to achieve one's end in ministry. As a false convert. For many years claiming to be a Christian, I was guilty of this. Using the world to achieve what I thought an end would be in ministry. I'm ashamed. The doctrine of Balaam, it pervades our churches, our Christian schools, our ministries. Using the world to achieve our ends in ministry. And in effect, calling good evil and evil good. When we say God's methods don't work, we're calling what God calls good evil. When we're saying certain things are okay that God says to flee from. We're guilty of calling good what he calls evil. Look at the church today. 
I don't see an, I don't see evidence of this here, and it's a great. I about fell off the pulpit here. Sorry, that'd be funny. I didn't see any evidence of that here this morning. I rejoice, but I, one of the things that really disturbs me as I travel around and meet Christians on campuses is just the way we as Christians conduct ourselves, the way Christian women dress. The Bible tells Christian women to be modest. Modest isn't a specific brand of clothes or a specific type of clothes, I don't believe, but modesty is modesty. Look at the immodesty everywhere. Some of the stuff that people wear on these campuses or wherever as Christians 50 years ago, and some of you older folks would appreciate this and understand, 50 years ago you'd have been arrested either for being insane or for criminal behavior. And the things that we as a church considered ungodly and unrighteous even as recently as 50 years ago are considered okay. Even to the point where we're, uh, you know, kind of being coaxed to believe that, well, maybe homosexuality is okay. As long as they love each other. I meet people that say that garbage all the time. Or we've taken a, a soft view of things that Christians of bygone days took a stand upon. Things that men died for centuries ago. No big deal today. Have we called evil good and good evil? Woe unto those that do that. I'll move quickly. Verse 21, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. It's a dangerous place as a church. It's a dangerous place as a missionary. It's a dangerous place as a Christian witness to be wise in our own eyes. To think that we have a better way of reaching the world for Christ than God Himself. I've been guilty of this many times. For that I'm ashamed. The Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy paths. In the next verse, we often forget, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. But yet, we don't fear the Lord. I've had people say, You're not supposed to fear God. God's a God of love. Well, God is a God of love. Because God is a God of love, He must hate. I love children. I love little children, therefore I hate abortion. I love Jesus Christ, therefore I hate false teaching. God's love was manifested in Jesus Christ, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That little word so there, you know, even the basic understanding of English grammar, it's an adverb. It tells us how He loved the world. He loved the world in this way. He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But my friends, outside that channel, that river of love in Christ, there is only wrath. There is only judgment. How can we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The writer of Hebrews says, God's ways are higher than our ways and we need to be wise in His eyes. And the way we're wise in His eyes is not by philosophy, uh, not by man-made uh, uh, politics, it's by this book. To be wise in our own eyes is to cast away this book. I've heard it once. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. In fact, uh, one of the campus 
ministry student leaders I spoke to recently finally got aggravated with me as we were talking and said, listen, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus, but the Bible was just written by men. You can't put your faith in all that stuff. What do you say? I've learned that the ultimate end of any argument or any debate about the things of God is three simple words. It is written. I said, my friend, it is written that the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Jesus was tempted by Satan. Throw yourself off there. God will give his angels charge over thee. He butchered the scripture. He left out a key phrase. Jesus said, it is written. Do not tempt the Lord thy God. That's the ultimate end of the argument. If we want to be wise in God's eyes, we'll be people of the book. If we want to be wise in our own eyes, we'll throw this book aside and we'll listen to philosophy. Pragmatism. If it's practical, do it. We need to be people of the book. And then finally, the last woe that the prophet mentions is in verse 22. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. I'm afraid. If it's not happening now, it's going to happen. People that have given us a testimony of sound doctrine, people that have uh, given a testimony of faithful ministry, become people who pal around with false teachers and false doctrines. In a way to push for peace and unity, but peace and unity apart from the truth. And what ends up happening is the wicked are justified for reward and the righteousness of the righteous is taken from him. Woe unto those. When we began to persecute those who would preach the truth of us because that truth offends us and God is drawing them to us to himself. And we reject it and we become like Cain when confronted with truth. What did he do? He killed one who was more righteous than we him. Are we going to come to that point? I believe we've come to that point in America. One of the things we try to do as a ministry, and we've started recently really uh, trying to focus on this somewhat more, is to raise awareness uh, about persecution of Christians in America. Christians that are openly sharing their faith are already being persecuted in this country. Trust me. If you go to my website, fpgm.org, I've got a page on there, Persecution in America, and some of the video footage will shock you. I encourage you to, to, to look. It'll shock you. And the sad thing is, is that sometimes the <clears throat> greatest enemies to the preaching of the cross are other so-called Christians. There are places where I've preached here in America that the lost are listening. But those claiming to be Christian get angry and they do everything they can to shut up the preaching. And it usually starts with, I agree with what you're saying, but your method's wrong. And it inevitably leads to dropping F-bombs, cursing, outright blasphemy, and then at times physical assault. It's amazing. It's amazing to watch this. We can't get to that point. God sends prophets and faithful missionaries and teachers to preach the truth to us, to warn us, to exhort us as believers. Let's don't be guilty of doing to them what Israel did to its prophets. Or what people in the church did to Paul when he preached the truth. And that's the ultimate manifestation of our rebellion is when we reject the messengers of God and persecute them. May we not come to that place as a church. There are many faithful servants of God around the world whose words are not listened to, who have been persecuted by those that would claim to be of the same flock. 
And yet there are those who pile around with false teachers. There's so much false teaching in America. So much false teachers. Some of them have been darlings of, of uh, Southern Baptist life. Some have not. I'm not here to name names, but there's false teaching out here. And if we're not judging everything we hear by this book, we'll be sucked into it. Don't follow a man. Follow the book. Don't follow me. If anything I've said to you tonight does not agree with this Bible, then you throw it in the garbage can. If it agrees, hear. Hear and consider. As Paul said to Timothy, consider what I say and the Lord give the understanding in all things. So these woes are pronounced upon Israel. We should take heed that we're not guilty of these things. That we're not guilty of focusing on earthly treasures and buildings and physical things. And rather we're living as pilgrims. The same pilgrims who were commended as great men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We need to make sure we're not drunk on the man-made philosophies that have corrupted the church. And instead, we're sobered by the simple truth of God. We need to make sure that we're not drawing around our sin like a, like a, like a cart rope. Content to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. But that we're striving to be holy. We need to make sure that what God calls evil, we call evil. What God calls good, we preach as good. We make sure that our wisdom comes from above, not from our own eyes. And we need to make sure that we hear God's teachers and His prophets who come and preach the truth and be instructed thereby and not persecute those who God has sent. We get to chapter 6. This is an amazing vision that Isaiah has of the glory of God. We need a vision of God's glory to be effectual as missionaries, not only here in America, one of the greatest mission fields in the entire world, but also as we continue to hold the ropes and support those that are laboring around the world. We need a vision of God's glory. And in order to have it, I believe we've got to purge ourselves of the things that I've mentioned tonight. If you study the history of great revival, whether it's here in America and other places, True revival was always preceded by repentance, corporate repentance. And some of the great sermons of old, if they were preached today, that those preachers would be run out of town. You can't preach that. And I'm trying to imagine what the reaction would be if Jonathan Edwards stood on a campus today and preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, which he read monotone, by the way. And people came under conviction and repented and cried out to the Lord and it was a spark to revival. I wonder what they do to him. I wonder how many Christians would come out and say, your message is not working. You're turning people away. You should leave. I don't know. What about George Whitfield? In his day, he said, I had the great pleasure today of having pieces of dead cat throw at me while I was preaching. Do we have that pleasure? <laughs> Maybe something worse at some point. But uh, the great revivals that God sparked through the preaching of his prophets and other times were preceded by corporate repentance. If we want to see revival in our church, we need to repent. We need to purge ourselves of these things that are weighing us down, these things that bring woe. We need to examine ourselves, as Paul says, and repent. And the amazing thing about our Lord and Savior, our God, the Creator, as He told Jeremiah, as He's told the people through Jeremiah, acknowledge thy sin before me. Only acknowledge thy sin. That's what repentance is. We've got to acknowledge it. But our problem is we're too caught up in justifying ourselves. Just as re true revival is preceded by repentance, true revival also produces, and you can see this throughout history, 
boldness in missions and the gospel going out. What we need here in the church is revival. We need revival so that we can be focused on the glory of God. In order for that revival to come, we need to humble ourselves and repent. We need to purge ourselves of these things that Isaiah talks about. And if we will catch a vision of the glory of God, what that will ultimately look like is boldness in missions. Boldness in the gospel going out. Purge ourselves of these things that God says, woe. And I'll close here. Isaiah said this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord also high and lifted up, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. And then he goes to talk about the seraphim. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. May God's glory cause us to pronounce upon ourselves a similar curse. To humble ourselves before Him. We are a people of unclean lips, and we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But look at the cleansing power of God. The seraphim took the coal from the altar and touched Isaiah's lips. It says, Thine iniquity is taken away. Unless God touches us, we can't be saved. Unless God touches us, we can't be changed. But if we'll humble ourselves and repent, He'll save us. He'll touch us and make us clean. He'll touch us and make us clean unto salvation. And then as a Christian of any man's sin, He has an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. And then look what happens. Isaiah is cleansed. And then the Lord says, Whom shall I send or who will go for us? And the prophet, compelled by the glory of God, compelled by the acknowledgement of his uncleanness, says these words, Here am I. Send me. Is that us tonight? Are we willing to say, to God, having purged ourselves of these things that are drawing us down, having seen the glory of God as revealed in Scripture, are we willing to say, here am I, send me? It's not about just, hey, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to give my life to these people. They don't need our lives. What they need is the truth of God and the gospel message. It's not a light thing to say, here am I, Lord, send me. Do we really understand what we're saying when we say it? If we'll purge ourselves and not be like the apostate church of the day, to be different, be different from the people of Israel. Forsake these things that bring woe. If we'll make the glory of God the motive in everything we do and surrender ourselves, God will use us. And the amazing thing about Isaiah's commissioning is God in the commissioning goes on to tell him, you're going to preach and they're not going to listen. You're going to preach and they're not going to hear. And if you study, you know, the prophets of the Old Testament, many of them, Ezekiel was told, you won't have anybody listen to you. Jeremiah preached and Baruch listened. The Ethiopian eunuch listened. But God told Isaiah to go and preach. They won't listen. But he did it. And in doing that, God was glorified. The same with us. If we'll go forward, 
Preach the gospel. Be obedient to God's strategies that are very simple. Every one of us has an opportunity every day to be a missionary here in the United States. One of the most morally bankrupt places on the whole planet. And to be about missions as a church is not only to support missionaries. That is so important and so many churches don't do that anymore. You guys don't only support cooperative efforts of Southern Baptists, but you support other ministries and individuals within your own body. It's a glorious thing that so many churches don't do anymore. There are churches that cut off their missionaries before they cut off or cut back on their electricity usage or on the size of their building. It's a shame. But there's more toward there's more to being a church that's committed to missions than just supporting missionaries. It's being missionaries yourselves. This society is wicked and evil. There's a small remnant left, except we had had a small remnant. We'd have been like Sodom a long time ago. Be a missionary. If you can't go to the ends of the world, as the commission says, then give so others can. And you all do that. If you can't go or you can't give, pray that God will send forth laborers into the harvest. If you can go, if you can give, and if you can pray, then do all three. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to preserve you blameless before the presence of his coming, Unto the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and honor, majesty and power, both now and forever. Amen.